the Trent, the Jet, they like agents on top of pavements, peppermint patty fragrance. Taking the credits when they spits and spritz a chip and dip a dip and dell I pin the tail. Death throw the penalty ID, throwing identity theft crime in the night. Pick pop key the lock stop drop roll the dice double double dough eat the rock road. Rochambeau tic tac toe crossing a road with the nice flow with my industry. See me room room play Monopoly with my commodities. Stop the eyes and cross the teeth. How do you do, Venters? In this episode, I sit down with a gentleman that you may not know of, but you might be familiar with the international company and the renowned sales trainer that Mike Evans touched along the way. As a matter of fact, Mike touched me, and that's how I am able to have him touch you and affect you today. Enjoy the conversation. How do you do, Venters? So welcome to today's edition of Vent with Trent the Gent. And I'm sitting today in the Hollywood home of my newfound friend, Mike Evans. Um, Mike is responsible, in, in his words, for developing the overseas operation of what has become one of the largest international real estate companies in the world. And so we'll get into that a, a little bit later. But Mike, thank you for being a guest on Vent with Trent the Gent today. Thanks, Trent. It's a privilege for me to be here with you. Good. So before we get into all the details, um, the international real estate company that we're talking about is, is Century 21. And so before we get into the details of that, and I'm sure you might have some stories that you can share that none of us have ever heard before <laughs> uh, about the company. Um, I want you, and this is something I've never done before, Give the listeners just a little background and history of how we met in our serendipitous encounter and now we're, I'm sitting here in, in your Hollywood home. So explain to them how all that happens. Well, we were at the new home uh, or soon to be new home of the Los Angeles Chargers. And we were there to celebrate the uh, graduation of my granddaughter and your son. Exactly. And we just happened to sit next to each other, which was really interesting because there was nobody else sitting there. Well, we were hiding. We were trying. We were looking for shade, we taking were, cover. We were looking for shade, and, and it was not uh, easily found. So we were kind of up in, a, in an obscure corner of that stadium, and uh, there you were with your family, and uh, Robin and I were there to observe the festivities and just we chatted a little bit but not a whole lot obviously as, as there I, was an event I, going on as i recall um but uh, i just had the sense a trent's a cool guy and uh, has a nice family and somehow uh, we should uh, connect uh, sometime in the future but i didn't really say anything at the time because uh, it's just awkward like oh can, will you be my friend? It's just weird. going to stop me or what? It just seemed weird. So I didn't say I didn't say anything, but I made sure that I got your business card uh, with the intention of getting a hold of you uh, at some point and having lunch. Yeah. And speaking uh, of business card, not to interrupt you, but the weird thing that day was you had no idea what my everyday business was in custom clothing. Correct. And that day you just happened to have on one of my competitors' custom suits. <laughs> so that was even more weird. 
Yeah, that 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 is weird. <laughs> uh, it's the only custom suit I own. So. And, and you just happen to have I, it on that day. I, I no, I wear I wear it anytime <laughs> there's an event. I make sure that I wear that suit uh, because it's uh, it's my best one. Yes. So um, I think we talked about high-end clothing, and you mentioned that you that that was your competitor, and uh, so I took your business card with the intention of calling you for lunch at, at some point. And I think uh, that was, what, a year or so ago? And so it took Not all even. that time. I, I think we communicated a little bit by text. Uh, anytime you were near Hollywood, you'd send me a text, hey, I'm near your place, um, have a great day. And then I'd text back and know oh, we'll have to get together sometime and uh, like people do. And you said, okay, great. And it, it just, it just eventually, um, uh, I think I was impressed with the idea that uh, we should do it. So we, uh, we arranged to, to meet in Belmont Shore at a time that was convenient for both of us. And so that was, that was the beginning. Mm -hmm. And we spent probably an hour or so just chatting and, uh, and eating. connecting, eating and <laughs> chatting and, and uh, hearing a little bit about where you grew up and, and your life experience. And, and uh, similarly, you grew up in Pasadena, I grew up in North Hollywood. So we had similar experiences, although they're separated by time yes. as I'm older. So obviously when you brought us up to the, to the lunch that, that we had in, in Long Beach and the way you described it to me that day is that you knew that we would have lunch, although that was never communicated that day right. at the at the graduation and even to to date obviously we're sitting here and we're doing the podcast do you feel that people meet for a reason like i said a podcast is coming out of this obviously right. i i called you my friend so i i do consider you a friend at this point so other than those two things do, do you believe things just happen or is there a reason for us connecting that way or how, how do you read the whole scenario well, I think um, um, because of the way we, uh, Robin and I wound up in Los Angeles, I, I assume that every meeting has some potential uh, for being um, productive. Mm -hmm. And Robin is your uh, wife, just for the listeners. Right, right. And so um, we, uh, we spent, I was 40 years in Newport Beach and um, we came to Los Angeles basically because God called us here and there, there was a church, uh, a non-denominational Christian church made up of about 3,000 young people uh, here at the time and we, were, we had been going to a, a church down in Orange County, a conservative of basically just a non-denominational Christian church, um, but the, the parishioners were getting older and of course we're getting older as well, but we were uh, very active in the ministry. I preached to the homeless um, regularly through that church. And Robin was running a, a, a summer Bible study with about 700 women in it. And the young women were saying to Robin, we love your study, but the church, the di the, the makeup of the church of all older people makes it difficult for us to to really connect with the church 
and they told us we've been going to a church in LA and it's it's dynamic and you know if you could incorporate some of the elements of the dynamic young church uh, then perhaps we would attend uh, services at, at this church, uh, at your church. And so we came up here to see what was happening. And from basically the, the moment we set foot in the church, I told Robin, this, this is where we're going to come to church. Uh, even though we're living in Newport Beach, we're going we're gonna to come here from now on. So we left the church we were in because we felt uh, God was calling us here. And the, the energy of the young people, and they were just, it seemed like they were on fire and they really wanted to live for Christ and not just chatter about it. Uh, and so that appealed to us. So we, we came here for a year, um, every Sunday from Newport, and one of the young one of the youngsters in the church told me that uh, God had spoken to her and said, God told me you are going to sell your house and move to Newport. I moved to Los Angeles. And I said, eh, I don't think that was God telling you that. I live right by the, right by the beach. And I, I don't think God wants me to, it took me a long time to get to the beach. I've worked a long time. And I'm four minute walk to the sand, so I don't think God wants me to move to Los Angeles. So when she told you that God told her this, right. did, did you think that that conversation could not be had and she's just talking or? I thought she was crazy. I thought she was crazy. She was 19 years old and I thought, nah, it's not, not real, uh, but she she said it again about a month or two later and I teared up and so I knew something is happening. So, so I, that was... So I became open to the idea that God would actually... something emotionally caught you on that second time she said it to you. Yes. It, it was just... It was just different. You just had a different, it was different. response, obviously. Right. Time. So I became open uh, to the idea. I still thought it wasn't a great idea to <laughs> leave the beach uh, and come to the city, but uh, I became open to it. And just over time, uh, God just kept impressing on me that, uh, yes, you need to go there and, because if you're going to minister to young people, which by that time we had been doing, um, and, and uh, God revealed to me that if you're going to be ministering to young people, you have to be where they are. You can't, you can't minister to young people in the inner city um, and live by the beach in Newport. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that it way. Does, it does, no, it's, no. It's not your audience. You don't have credibility, so you're not one of them. You're just kind of like a visiting um, beach boy or something. So... At that moment, were you having conversations with God, or you said oh, yeah. He was impressing and revealing things? So, so, so to me, I find it interesting that this young lady told you about her conversation with God, and right. you thought she was kind of out there. Right. So now I'm trying to get: were these conversations that you ended up having with God, or like, say, or it was just clues that He left you? Well, I you? was growing spiritually, 
and I'd been a Christian for a really long time, but kind of uh, just going through the motions, go, uh, going to church and, and uh, a little bit here and there. Um, I was preaching to the homeless and that was very meaningful to me, uh, but I was still really active, more active in my business and less active uh, in my spiritual life. And so I think as I became more active in my spiritual life, God was able to uh, communicate to me more clearly. Not, not that he needs me to do certain things. He could, he could hit me with a two by four if he chose to. But in my case, uh, I had to become more uh, teachable, I think. And as I became more spiritually mature, um, by virtue of being here and interacting and ministering to the needs of the young people, uh, I became more keenly aware of what God wanted me to do. So I'm going to go back to, to the lunch because some, some of this information you shared with me th that day. And all I can, and I think I might have told you that, that day during lunch that I had never met anyone quite like you in just the way that you live your life and I guess I summed it up as you, you totally live by the mantra of let go, let God. And not simply just for certain instances that you, you have this issue that you're, you're, you're trying to get this house or whatever it is and it's not working out. So I'm just going to let it go and let God handle it. <laughs> but it's to the, to the extent that you live your life, that's, that's your lifestyle. So that's how I summed it up. And I, like I said, I've never met anyone like that before. Um, and so I think I asked you at that time, it must take a lot of faith, right? For that, a lot of courage. So, you know, explain to the listeners, you know, how you just, you just are and exist. <laughs> <laughs> I think I summed it up rather than taking uh, credit for being um, super spiritual, uh, I think I summed it up as a product of age and uh, spiritual maturity. And for me, uh, I think a combination of spiritual maturity, spiritual growth, uh, and having lived for a really long time uh, was part of opening me up to be, to, to be able to see that I could force things to happen. I'd been forcing things to happen for many years. I was a I was fairly uh, successful business person and a pretty much take charge guy. And, and so I recognized that I can make things happen. But the things that I made happen were not always uh, the best things. I was successful, uh, but Personally, I made some uh, bad, bad choices that caused me to, uh, some pain and other people pain as well. So a combination of spiritual maturity and age led me to the, to the belief that if I could behave, if I could do the things that God wanted me to do versus the things that I wanted to do, uh, that my life would be better in terms of not necessarily more successful, uh, but just better in terms of actually living out a, a God-ordained purpose. 
rather than living out uh, my uh, crafty uh, ability to make things happen. How do you distinguish the two? How, maybe the way that you were living and the choices that you were making, how do you know that that's not what God wanted you to do? So how, how do you just distinguish the two? Does that make sense? Well, if God, wanted to, if God wanted to break me down so that I would be teachable, then he wanted me to do those things. But a lot of the things that, uh, that I did, uh, I'm a re recovering alcoholic for one. So when you said, let go, let God, that resonated with me because uh, that's, a, that's a mainstay um, of, of the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous is to let go and let God. And when I first heard that, let go and let God, or when I first saw it on a bumper sticker, um, it ticked me off because I thought, what do you mean, let go and let God? I, I grab hold and make things happen. Is let this go. when you were, when you saw that bumper sticker, were you sober or no. not at the point? Drinking. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I happened to see the bumper sticker. I didn't know it was uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And the other one that used to bug me is Easy Does It. And I would think, Easy doesn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> hard driving, hard driving does it. And so I had to learn that stuff. And, and, and uh, to your point, I think, uh, I needed, to, I needed to, to go down that road uh, before I realized that uh, it's true. So if, if I can let go and, and let God, things will happen in accordance with His will versus my own taking charge of things and ramrodding everything. And once again, so, and that's pretty much how you made your decision to come up to LA County as opposed to Orange County. Correct. It was just, you just followed the, the calling, correct per se, that was, was out there. Correct. Let's um, get into Century 21 really quick, and I'm sure we will go back and forth, personal Century 21. Um, before, before I ask you the, the question, I have a, a pretty funny story <laughs> relative to Century 21. I was in Beverly Hills one day, and for whatever reason, I made myself like a golden colored sport coat. <laughs> and but it was heavily textured so in my eyes it didn't look like anything like a century 21 coat but I was just standing I was um, actually it was right next to to um, Beverly Hills High School and I was standing outside and I think I was about to walk towards Century City and someone approaches me and they were like um, are you a century 21 agent I'm here to see the house <laughs> And I was like, oh, no, 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 I, I, no, I just happen to have one on a golden uh, coat. So that, that was one thing that always, I, re, I will always remember that. And now, like I said, learning that you were responsible for the overseas development of Century 21. So tell us a little bit about that experience, you know, lessons learned during that time. Um, obviously, you're a very driven gentleman, as you alluded to before. And if there's any unheard of, untold stories about Century 21 that, that you could and might want to share with us. Well, that gold coat story that you told reminded me that in the early days when uh, Art Bartlett and Marsh Fisher, who were the founders of the company, uh, first were taking the system uh, throughout the United States. They were at a hotel for a, a grand opening in one, one of the states. 
and they had their gold coats on and some lady came up to him and asked him, she said, are you boys in the band? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it took a lot of humility to wear that gold coat, I tell you. Exactly. <clears throat> and a lot of our franchisees, uh, they wore the gold coat because it worked to identify um, the agents. Mm -hmm. Obviously, as, as, we, as, as we've proven, it's, people notice. But then as time went by, uh, there was more and more re reluctance because we, were, we had become a very powerful organization and the people were making, the franchisees were making good money. And they didn't want, they didn't want to wear that gold coat because they didn't want people to come up to them and, and ask them weird, weird questions. So uh, they finally... Uh, backed off. They muted the color at one point. Uh, now I don't know whether they wear the color or not. I do know overseas they wear the coat because I positioned the coat as as the overseas guy. I positioned the coat differently because I knew what the reluctance was here in the States. So I created an atmosphere where the gold coat became uh, more of a prestigious, um, a prestigious symbol uh, of successful business. And that worked really, I don't know if it's working today because I don't keep up with, with what Century 21 is doing, but I do know at the time that I was um, in charge of the overseas operation, um, the gold coat was very prominent in major cities like Paris, uh, Tokyo, Sydney, and it was a it was a, really a badge of, of success so it worked really well in the early days of the of the domestic company and it worked really well in the early days of the domestic or the uh, international company i wonder why in america <clears throat> it wasn't perceived that way um, because e even if it wasn't a badge of success. I think it, it's just like bad publicity is, is good publicity. This coat obviously garnered lots of conversations, right. which that's any type of business person would want to be able to get in a conversation about their business. So it seems like even if it wasn't a badge of success, it still did what it had to do marketing wise. It was a badge of identity in the, in the US. And uh, as happens with a lot of franchise companies, uh, franchisees begin to um, uh, demonstrate power and flex their muscle uh, with the franchisor. And th there's more of them. Uh, so when the, when the franchisees get together and they go to the franchisor and they say, we don't want to do this anymore, uh, then things change. And the same thing happens in, in any franchise organization. We don't want to make uh, we don't want to make uh, uh, egg McMuffins uh, okay. all day yeah. anymore because uh, it causes us uh, uh, frustration. So then suddenly egg McMuffins are only available till ten thirty, uh, and then after a time goes by and they realize, hey, wait a minute. Egg McMuffins are popular. If we stop giving them to the people at 10.30, maybe some of the people won't come to the McDonald's anymore because they can't get their Egg McMuffins. And so then they change back and they're available all the time. But franchisees have power. Uh, and I think that that was 
that was the, the, the thing that weakened uh, the gold coat in the United States. Hmm. And the reason I said I don't know what's going on internationally is because when I set up um, the international company, the regions were all powerful. And really what the regions said, what the, what the headquarters said, that's the way it was going to be. But over time, uh, franchisees develop more and more power. So then, th then it's a give and take. So interesting way I to look at I, it. Yeah, I, I really don't know what their what the current situation of the gold code is. Yeah, I don't see it as much. So I think it's probably waning, and if they wear it at all, I just don't really. Well, see I think it. domestically, uh, the gold code has never made a resurgence. Hmm. I'm saying I don't know what's happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Overseas. Yeah, I never looked at franchisees of having that much power or influence. So it's, but now that you say it, it makes sense because I always thought, like in the example that you gave, as far as they didn't, they didn't try to omit something from the menu. They just stopped selling at a certain time, which I guess is okay, as opposed to we're not going to put salt on those fries. Right. I think that would be probably. <laughs> against the, the franchise agreement. Um, I think, not to pat myself on the back, but some of the listeners that I have would probably be in real estate of some way or form. Um, as I probably told you before, um, I'm good friends with Brian Buffini, so there might yeah. be a lot of Buffiniites out there listening. So if there's any type of advice that you would give anyone in the real estate game, uh, what words of wisdom would you would you give them? Not you can share that that you're not in that industry. Well, for for one, uh, I think people like Brian Buffini are are fantastic. They have great wisdom, uh, and they're funny and entertaining. And real estate can be an extremely difficult business. And I do uh, today still uh, interview and counsel people that are coming into the real estate business. So I think it's really important for them to, number one, understand the business uh, that they're going in. A lot of people think that it's really easy and they'll just come in, into the business, drive people around and, until the person says, oh, I want that one. And then they're going to write it up and, and have a happy life. That sounds like the 60s. But it's, very, <laughs> it's a lot. Well, people who don't know the business, mm -hmm. they think that because it just, from the outside, it looks really easy. But once you get into it, uh, it's very challenging because particularly now, uh, sellers are always concerned that somebody's gonna take advantage of them and cause them to sell their house for less than it's worth. Uh, buyers are concerned that somebody's gonna take advantage of them and sell them something for more than it's worth. Uh, then they'll lose money um, or they'll lose um, respect among their peers because they'll say, well, why did you do that? Well, why did you sell uh, at that price? You could have held out and gotten uh, more money. You're, you must be a dummy. They don't actually say that, but, that, but you know that that's what they're thinking, that you're not very sophisticated. So there's a lot of pressure on people. And real estate salesmen, in order to be good, they have to be able to manage uh, people's distrust of the market, uh, of buyers if they're a seller, of sellers if they're a buyer. 
and you, you have to manage that. And in order to do that, you have to be extremely skilled. And in order to be extremely skilled, you have to listen to people who have something to say about how to work with people. And Brian Buffini would be one of those better people uh, to listen to. And you have to, you have to understand human behavior. So you have to listen to people uh, who have studied human behavior and know how to communicate uh, how humans behave and why humans do the things that they do. And you have to learn from them and then incorporate that into your business. Yeah, so that's almost like you need a psychology degree to be a realtor. <laughs> well, I teach negotiating and uh, that is one of the, one of the things that, that I teach that you have to be able to read people and you have to be able to put yourself aside and put the people first. And that you almost don't exist in the equation as a, as a, as a real estate person. Your beliefs, your political beliefs, your um, opinions uh, really don't matter. It, the only thing that matters is what does the client think? What does the client want? What does the client expect? You have to be able to provide that for them. Otherwise, uh, you're just another person to trying to get a commission, and people don't like that. Yeah. So you mentioned that you still consult with real estate agents. Obviously, you have your work in the church that you continue to do. Um, I think when we had our lunch, I had posed the question, what, what do you do exactly? What's your title? And so I, I probably at this point of the conversation, the, the listeners are probably wondering like, what does this guy do? <laughs> so I'll give you this. So, so what is your title? <laughs> well, as I told you before, I've spent many years trying to avoid having a title. I'm not on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not any place by design. Uh, my primary life is spent in really helping people, um, helping people navigate through life. Uh, primary focus is spiritual. Uh, secondary focus would be uh, business. And uh, I don't have a, t I might have a title actually if I think about it. <laughs> I think you could you could call me the uh, director of uh, um, recruiting and new agent development, but it's not on my card. Well, so if do you, you do you have a card? No. So if you it, if you did, or yeah, I think I have a card, and I think it says broker associate on it. Okay. Uh, which is the same thing that all the agents in in, in real estate have on their card. So I don't have any special designation, uh, but I do, um, I do do those things. It's the same thing uh, in the spiritual uh, realm, not in the spiritual realm, but in the, in the, in the pursuit of, of doing God's work. Uh, I don't have a, a formal title. Uh, so I'm just a guy out there making myself available to people and they either like it or they don't like it. If they don't like it, that's cool. And if they like it, they'll gravitate to me and I, I, I'll be able to help them. And it doesn't matter to me whether they perceive me as, oh, that's Pastor Mike 
or oh that's uh, director of uh, uh, recruiting Mike and uh, oh gee if I can get past the director of recruiting then if I can convince him then that's really good I, I don't need that I, I just really focus everything I do is focused on the person helping you, the person. you don't need it right and, and, and you've already expressed well either they want they, they get what they get and they get you without the title. Right. But what if they feel like they need the title? They need to label you as, as something. As I told you, I think at lunch, uh, because of our age difference, I, mean, I, I don't want to come across as, hey, I'm so cool, I don't need a title. I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, I would rather say because of my level because of my age and all the things that I've done I I really don't need a title <laughs> I mean, I, hey I, I totally get it it's like why do we yeah, need titles yeah why do we even need a business card it's but, just I am who I am yeah. and I'm more than just a realtor so with all that said I, I saw something very interesting and you'll probably be the third person that was at least in the real estate business that I've asked this question to. Do you know what a realtist is? No. Oh, yes, I do. So yes, explain, because I, I saw this, a gentleman had it on his business card, he gave it to me, and I saw it's realtor slash realtist, and I was like, what is that? And so, of course, I went and looked it up. So explain yeah. to the uh, listeners what it is and maybe if you know a little bit of the history of a, a realtor. And... I don't know the history but I do know that um, I joined the International Real Estate Federation uh, in 1978 and went to Hamburg for a uh, conference and I met my first realtor. <laughs> and so I like you I had the question what what is a realtor? because I'd never heard of it before uh, and this was 78, you said, right? Yes. Okay. And it, it, it's a group of African-American uh, real estate brokers who, for whatever reason, and perhaps I had very minimum uh, inner city uh, interaction at that time. So for me, um, being like, uh, I don't know, unsophisticated perhaps, uh, guy, uh, I was just curious about it. And so what I found out was that they, there are certain issues that are unique to the African American community and they wanted to make sure that those issues were addressed um, by the National Association of Realtors and by their local board. And so the way to do that is to band together and make sure and communicate with one another so they could communicate with a uniform voice uh, to their trade association. This is important to us. This is important to the African-American community. And so we want you as the trade organization to address these issues. Yeah. And obviously, over time, I presume those were addressed because, like I said, I had never heard of that that title, we'll say, right. until this was re probably a month ago that, that I saw this. And so obviously at that time, during those times, um, African-Americans were not able to go and sell in white neighborhoods or 
the um, others did not want them representing them in a cell of a house as well. So correct, and I did. I came from that environment. I I started in real estate in 1962, and so I was selling real estate in the Western San Fernando Valley. <clears throat> so. Um, I wouldn't call the Western San Fernando Valley a hotbed of prejudice, uh, but it definitely was a place where awareness of the needs of the African American community uh, were not known, were not understood. Uh, so I sort of evolved in my understanding of the needs uh, by virtue of legislation that came down, anti-discrimination legislation. And as a young salesman, uh, the company that I worked for, uh, which was the old Forrest Olson company, which later was morphed into uh, Coldwell Banker, uh, they would have meetings where they would explain to the salesman, this is what, this is the Unruh Act. Uh, this is, this is, the Civil Rights Act of 1968 or whatever year it was. I think it was 68. And this means you can't uh, refuse to show property uh, to an African-American. Well, on the surface, you, 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 today you might say, well, of course you can't refuse to show property to an African-American. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. It does, doesn't make any sense. Why would you need a law that says something as simple as that? Well, back in those days, there were sellers who said, I don't want you to bring a, a, an African-American or I don't want you to bring an Asian over here. I don't want you to bring this kind of person over there because my neighbors uh, will not like that. And so you got to promise me you'll, you won't do that. Uh, just blatant, uh, blatant discrimination. And so from a business point of view, you think, well, oh, okay, well, I'm not prejudiced, but if my seller is prejudiced and he doesn't want me to do that and I don't do that, I'm okay. No, you're not okay. You're, you're conspiring uh, to, to um, rob people of their right to own property. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that. And so people, a lot of people say, well, how can you legislate morality? Well. The same reason you have to have a speed limit, because if you didn't have a speed limit, people would go 100 miles an hour anytime they wanted to. And so uh, legislation changes society, uh, I believe, and it's important to have that legislation to cause people to think of things that they don't normally think about. I'm going to get into something else real estate-wise that you shared with me that I found very interesting. But before I get into that, so you said if someone were to, to look you up online, they, can't they, find they would not find you, and that's by design, you said. So, so how, because it seems to me that if you're just out doing what you do, at some point, if someone puts your name in, something will pop up. So how, how did you do that by design? How, 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 how do you prevent things from just popping up if someone, and obviously your name, Mike Evans, it's a pretty, probably common name, but you're right. I, I went to look you up and there's all type of Mike Evans and I'm scrolling through everything trying to find you 
and there's nothing. So how, how do you I control should, that? I should write a book, How to Be Invisible. <laughs> because the, I'm the true really, invisible man. I am really good at it. Um, I think, um, I can't tell you exactly how I do it. I think it's a mindset. And I think the old Mike would have said, I gotta be on social media. I have to be, and, and I, again, as I pointed out to you, I'm older and so I've already done things. So I'm not suggesting to your audience, hey, you can be cool like me and, and you can be yeah. invisible too if you play your cards right. I'm not suggesting that at all because you have to participate in uh, the economic conditions that we find ourselves in. If you're not on LinkedIn, you're invisible. And if you're trying to make money and you're invisible, that's a bad thing. I'm not trying to make money. So invisible is a good thing because the only time, the, uh, the only people I wanna meet and talk to are people that God wants me to meet and talk to. I don't want anybody to find me and call me and say, hey, you know, I, I, tell me about this or tell me about that or can, can, can I interview you for my book? And I don't, I don't need that, I don't want that. And it doesn't, it doesn't fit in with my life goal, uh, which is to do only what God wants me to do. I hope there, <laughs> I, I mean, I hope everyone can just digest that. <laughs> Right, just as because I think we talked about this at lunch, right? And obviously, I came into existence for you, and so then I'm like, well, there's the the lady that waited on us that day. There's other people passing by. There was someone sitting right behind us. How do we know that God didn't want you to say something to one of them in order to? have a relationship. So like I said, it's, it's all pretty heavy, yeah. but I, it might be a little heavy for us to, to, to go it's into It's heavy right and, now. and it's also very complex. Yes. And I'm reminded when, when I first went to work for Century 21, it was a growing, very dynamic, new concept in real estate. And so I had come from the traditional real estate model, uh, not franchising. And my attitude was, well, if I, I thought I was a superior operator and my company was a superior company and I had goals and aspirations. I wanted to be the president of the company and I was working really hard to get there. And so when, um, when they tried to explain to me the concept of banding, banding together uh, in a franchise system. My concept was, well, if you take a bunch of dumb people and you put them together, they'll be dumber than they were before because they'll, they'll all be just there you go. saying dumb things to go each other. Multiply. I didn't understand the dynamic of the power of numbers. When I figured it out, I called my buddies at Century 21. Actually, they called me. But I responded. No, oh, because wait, so so, back, they, so they you figured it me, out, but they called you. I well, mean, how? they called they called me at about the time I had figured out okay. that hey, the franchising is a dynamic 
opportunity for people. Lots of people can do lots of things and together we are stronger than we are individually. I didn't understand that concept. I thought I was an island and, and um, I, I, I drank enough to keep convincing myself of that. Mm -hmm. And just about the time that they, Century 21 called me, I had uh, sobriety and I had, I had uh, began to change my life, walking away from alcohol and walking towards sobriety. And I was learning new things. I was learning things like let go, let God, easy does it, uh, that we talked about earlier. And those were foreign concepts to me. And I remember when I got, when I got the job at Century 21, uh, a friend of mine from AA, an older guy, he was probably about my age. I thought he was real old. <laughs> he said to me uh, when he knew that I was going to get this job, he said, you know, in every company, there's a guy that everybody identifies as the nicest guy in the company. He said, be that guy. I never forgot that because I had never been that guy before. I had always been the guy, the smartest guy, the most aggressive guy, uh, the toughest guy, the smartest guy in my own mind. Mm -hmm. uh, but now I was charged with the responsibility to be the nicest guy in the company. And so I began to change my persona. And within four months, I was a vice president and I, had, I was charged with the responsibility of helping to develop about a third of the United States. And so I did that and I developed what, what I like to refer to as a servant's heart. And I advise young people, if you want to be successful, you have to put yourself aside and you have to become a servant. And that coincides uh, with the scriptures because Christ said, you have to be a servant of all. And so I developed that ability over time. And then one thing led to another and then, and then they asked me to take the system uh, overseas. And so uh, basically all the time, I was working with foreigners and so uh, not having understood, not having any background in understanding foreign cultures, I was able to move into those foreign cultures and be completely comfortable because I had that servant's attitude. I wasn't, hey, I'm the hip, slick, and cool American come over to tell you clowns how to run your business. I didn't do that. I came in with a servant's heart. Mm -hmm. How can I help you? What are, your, what are your needs? How can I adapt my style of communication to match uh, your style of receiving? And, and that was really the, not the turning point, but that, that, that really, my, my career really took off then. Yeah. I gotta touch upon what I alluded to earlier. Um, you said something very interesting to me at lunch that you trained the great Tom Hopkins. So everyone right. in real estate and probably sales know of, of Tom Hopkins. So tell me a little bit about that experience and 
as the trainer, and actually I, I went on to one of his videos that's online, he's, he's Googleable, online, um, something about the art of, of sales. And believe it or not, he tells the story of how he went to a seminar that changed his life. And he mentioned a gentleman that conducted that seminar. So I didn't know if that was you or not, but he said that gentleman actually changed his life. So I'm hoping it was you because we'll, <laughs> we'll have a good story here. But so tell me about that experience. And at what point did the student surpass the teacher in this case? I would love to take credit uh, for Tommy Hopkins' uh, success, but I can't. I can tell you that I was uh, part of um, part of a, a number of people who were teaching uh, at, at the company at the time that uh, Tom, Tommy was there. Uh, we all had a, a role to play in the training uh, regimen. I happened to teach closing which to my mind closing is, is the most important uh, subject. I taught, I taught Tommy, he called himself Tommy at that time. Well, I, ta I taught Tommy when he was a kid uh, right out of high school, uh, J. Douglas Edwards 13 Closes. That's the guy that changed Tommy's life. J. Douglas Edwards. J. Douglas Edwards he had something called the 13 closes. It was uh, very powerful. And for actually okay. for anybody in sales now, uh, it, it wouldn't hurt to look that up. Yeah. It's is, old fashioned, the words are old yeah. fashioned. Is that the one when I think he did tie-in? Is that the one, isn't he called the tie-in? Well, there's a Close lot of, there's yes. a lot of them. Tie down, tie down is, I guess. is probably yeah. what you're remembering. Yes. But alternative of choice clothes, uh, Benjamin Franklin balance sheet clothes, I can recite that, I won't right now, but I can <laughs> recite it word for word. And I've done it at a couple of- How long is it? Uh, too long to- Oh, to, it'll be too to, long, because if it's a minute, it, it might be worth it. No. But if it's 10 minutes, then obviously- No, but it's old, it's, it's old fashioned. And so uh, those kinds of close, closes don't really work anymore, um, th that type, but but Why not? The, 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 Why wouldn't it stand the test? As of time? you know, sir, we Americans have long considered Benjamin Franklin one of our wisest men. Whenever old Ben found himself in a situation such as you're in today, uh, if it was the right thing to do, he wanted to be sure and do it. And if it was the wrong thing, he wanted to be sure and avoid it. Isn't that about the way you feel today, sir? Of course. Uh, okay, so that that's it, and then it goes on some more. But it's it's kind of um, uh, old-fashioned sales. Uh, the alternative of choice clothes, would you like to come in at 3 or would 4.30 be better for you? Uh, that's applicable uh, today, absolutely. Yes. And so there's a lot of old-fashioned stuff that's applicable today. Some of it has to be tweaked to, to meet the culture. But I taught that stuff uh, to Tommy and he was a great student. Uh, the thing I remember about Tommy is he, he only had one shirt. And it uh, only well, had one white shirt. Okay. And he wore it every day to the training se uh, seminar. And it had ruffles on it because it was his high school band shirt. Nice. Yeah. So he was an interesting guy. Uh, 
Everybody told him, you can't do this. It's too, it's too hard. You're not ready to, for it. In real estate or to real end estate. up being a trainer? Or both? No, he, everybody told him, you, you can't sell real estate. You're a, you're a kid just out of high school. You only own one shirt. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I saw something in him that was really, uh, I saw a spark in his eyes. And I knew uh, this kid's going to make a lot of money. He's going to make a lot of mistakes, but he's going to make a lot of money. He started out in Simi Valley. Uh, where you could buy a house for $10,000 and a dollar down. Hmm. And he sold a lot of them. Nice. I think he even bought a lot of them. And then he met um, the, guys, the guy who uh, developed the material that I used to train Tommy was J. Douglas Edwards. Somehow, Tommy got in touch with him. And that was probably the seminar that changed his life. He later became uh, J. Douglas Edwards' protege. He left um, the real estate business and uh, eventually moved to Scottsdale so he could live next door to his mentor, J. Douglas Edwards, and the rest is history. He writes books, he, wow. he, um, he's tremendously successful, and his uh, sales expertise goes way beyond real estate. It's remarkable. I got to get some, some other things in. Um, there's always certain things that we do on Vent with Trent Gent, so I want to make sure we don't leave the audience hanging on those. So being spiritual, religious, do you, um, do you practice Lent since we're in the Lent season here? Do you give up anything? So normally we do invent with Trent the Gent, greatest invention of all times, <laughs> or now I want to lint with Trent the Gent. So are you giving up anything for Lent or do you no. partake in that? No. No. So as we do that, I'll bite into this cookie. <laughs> Got your lovely bride made for me. Because <laughs> obviously I'm not giving up sweets for Lent. Well, I'm a very informal, uh, informal guy. I grew up Catholic and so I had a lot of formal um, things. So I, what did you? When I was very young. So when you were young, what did you have to give up, or anything that you remember giving up that I you were just so like? So long ago, I just remember I couldn't eat fish on Friday. I couldn't eat. You, uh, meat all you on could eat Friday. was fish. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's all I remember. Was that painful to you? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it was probably painful, and that's why I stopped doing it. Yeah. Exactly. So why am I giving up all but this? I stuff? became very, uh, very a-religious um, at a very young age. I had no interest in religious things, and uh, because it, it was, wasn't until I—I I don't know that it was because of that. I really don't know. I—I I don't want to say that the Catholic Church drove me away. I—I I, I don't want to say that. I have a very—I fond feelings and memories of uh, my Catholic education. Mm -hmm. it, it only lasted through the third grade, but but I remember we were taught by uh, French nuns and. It, it was, it was a happy time. Good. So, so I, I, it didn't drive me away. I just really, really became uh, kind of like a guy of the world, wanting to figure out how can I make money, how can I be a shaker and a mover. Uh, don't bother me with other stuff. And so I spent the next several years uh, doing that. Hmm. And then it was later on. Uh, I think at age 28, where I began to think, wait, wait a minute, maybe there's more to life than this. But it took me a long time to go from that realization uh, to really understanding what I was supposed to be doing. Maybe years. 
So it didn't, it didn't happen uh, for me overnight. It was a process. Yeah. Before we end too, um, looking around your, your lovely abode, and as I stated before, we're, we're in Hollywood. Actually, if you walk out to the street and look north, right, the Hollywood sign is pretty much right there. Um, tell us a little bit about the history of where we're sitting. I've already had a tour, and so you told me some, some interesting tidbits. So um, if you can share any of that information, that would be kind of cool. Sure, if you, uh, if you Google uh, Chateau Beachwood, uh, Sounds like a restaurant. And then there's a, 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 a website called Curb L.A. It has the building on it. It's a Walter King building, which Walter King was a prominent uh, architecture, uh, architect in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, this building was, um, Warner Brothers owned it. They put their starlets in it. It's a 10-unit apartment building, French Chateau, and um, by architecture, and uh, they uh, they would keep the starlets here so they, so they knew where they were. And they would send the limousines uh, every morning to pick them up and take them to Warner Brothers Studio. So that, that was the beginning stages of, of this building. Uh, it later became an apartment building. The rumor is Marilyn Monroe had lived here. Uh, Greta Garbo supposedly lived here, uh, the website says. Uh, and uh, we know for sure uh, that uh, Madonna lived here because people stop by here and say, oh yeah, I, I was here when Madonna and Sean Penn were here. Several other very well-known uh, people were here. When uh, the tour bus comes by, uh, <laughs> it drives my wife crazy sometimes. I'll see that tour bus go and I'll run out front and wave to the people. And, and, and then the guy says, there he is, there he is. And I don't know who he said now. I know he says I have, but I, I probably like some game show host. You look I, like you have that game yeah, show host look. <laughs> so I have I have fun with it, but it's it, it is a uh, it's a historical uh, Hollywood site. Yeah, very lovely. So it's fun. It's fun to be here. Good. Let's do um, something that we do on every event with Trent the Gent, and it's called fill in the blanks. So I'm gonna say. Probably three words, and then you're gonna fill in the blank. Okay. Got it? All right, so don't stop. Caring. Don't stop caring. So obviously we, we mentioned being a serve, having that servitude, I guess, mentality. You wanna expound on don't stop caring a little bit? Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, we are really called to servanthood. And in order to have, I believe, for me to have a, a truly fulfilling life, uh, I have to be a servant and I have to take care of people as best I can. And without, I mean, without being, um, you know, not to totally ignorant of your own needs, uh, because you, you, you can be so caring that you don't pay attention to what you need. Uh, so I'm not talking about that kind of caring, but just living your life as a, as a servant. I mean, Christ was the example. Uh, greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his friends. Christ said, you are my friends, and he laid down his life for us. Second one, you can blank. 
Well, the old Mike would say, you can do anything that you put your yeah, mind you to do. All right, so, so that's uh, the old Mike. That, that's a stump. That's a stump. Stump me. Uh, stump the chump. We're playing I'm sure on. it's hard to stump you. I, I, I think uh, you can... Um, you can live a fulfilling life if you are willing to surrender. So there you go. Same, let go of that God, surrender. Right. Same, um, same bang. Last one. Conversations are blank. Important. Why are they so important? I think conversations lead to understanding. And as we, as we talked a little bit before, about how the whole issue with African Americans and the need for uh, realists to come together, um, I think they they come together so they can have conversations. Conversations lead to understanding, um, and understanding leads to uh, justice. Another segment that I normally do would be, are you right-handed or left-handed? I should already know this just by looking at you. <laughs> right-handed. Right-handed. Most, most of my guests so far have been right-handed. I, I wonder why. Then we follow that with right brain, left brain. I think that, that that's complicated for me because I think I, I have both and I'm developing uh, the, the more I'm in Los Angeles, the more of the artistic side is being developed. I was very black and white kind of guy before. Uh, rigid, um, tough, hard driving guy. And when I moved to the city, I, I don't want to say it was all moving to the city that did it, but I think the real refinement in me, I'm a totally different guy uh, than I was when I first came here five years ago. So anyone that knew you eight years ago and met you now, would they still be attracted to you? Would, would, would it be so strange that no, you because, did a 180? No, or? because, I, no, because I, I, I morphed over a long period of time. I mean, I, I, I want to say, uh, like I told you, I became aware that there has to be something better, so has to be m something more um, to life than just making money. And I figured that out at age 28. And so from, from age 28 to about 33, uh, 33 is when I realized uh, that the, the answer for my life was surrendering to Christ. But actually making that happen took a few more years, because I, I would surrender and then I would take it back. Surrender, take it back. So it's it's been a it's been a journey. So we're gonna wrap up here. Um, I haven't done this lately, but but I saw this book. I, I used to actually give a book on every episode, and I saw this one. It's called God's Coaching Methods: Key to Effective Coaching. You may or may not read this because I know when we first met, I had um, asked you if you were an Og Mandino fan, one of my favorite authors. And not that you're not a fan, but I'm a big you, fan. Oh, okay. Big but, fan. Just didn't read the book. Yeah, you just exactly and and won't. So you may <laughs> so you may not read this one as well. But I just thought it was apropos to just some of the things that maybe that you do. 
um, chapter 5 specifically says he lets us choose he being God of course right. um, so we're gonna what what does that mean to you he lets us choose and then after you say that we'll we'll let people know perhaps how to find you I think uh, it's really you can tell where I am Oh no! It's, it's, it's well, up to you. No, I'm no. saying we're going to well, put it out there. They already know. They they can look. They can well, look up my place. They've yeah. been driving over here. There you go. Uh, uh, so I think what that means is that God gives us the dignity to make our own decisions. He tells us truth in Scripture, but He doesn't make us embrace the truth. He just tells it to us that we get to decide. Mm -hmm. Are we going to respond or are we going to continue to do our own thing? Status for quo. years, for years I did my own thing. God didn't, God didn't say, hey, wait a minute, I'm going, to, I'm going to come down there and knock your teeth out. He allowed me to knock them out myself. And then one day I looked in and said, hey, my teeth are knocked out here. Uh, maybe, I should, maybe I should be behaving a different way. He gives us the dignity to make choices that lead us into the direction uh, that our lives should go. That, that's what it means to me. That's almost, I, I read the beginning of chapter five in almost verbatim, obviously different words. That's what um, the author, doc, uh, Dr. Dada says in that book. So it's remarkable that you- Well, he's an MD and since he thinks the same thing I think, I better read it. Yes, I'll there you go. <laughs> so. Thank, thank you for sharing all your words of wisdoms and just stories and it was just it's just great knowing you and before we let you say how to, to reach you hopefully this episode the listeners the venters they will listen to this one over and over because like i said sometimes we i thought some of the concepts are kind of heavy so as we do books, and I'm sure you do that, we read them over and over. Hopefully, they'll do the same with this episode. So, Mr. Ungoogable, Mr. No Title, how do they find Mike Evans if they want to get in touch with you for consulting real estate, whatever it may be, um, help just with life? How, how does one contact you can, Mike? You can send me an email at evansre at yahoo. Okay. E-V-A-N-S-R-E at yahoo because that's all it can be, right? I'll that's, respond. All right, sounds good. All right, Mike, well, thank you. Thank you for your time. And I have a feeling that we'll, we'll do this again. Thank you. It's right. been my pleasure. Thank you. Questions are the answer. I think you'll be happy to know that the day of the snow job artist is over. That's right. He no longer has a place in our society. The man who overwhelms people with words he just doesn't belong here anymore. Today, the great said, sell not by telling people, but by asking questions. Venters, that was J. Douglas Edwards, the great sales trainer Mike mentioned in the episode. J. Douglas Edwards also said, never leave without a close. So here is mine. It's actually an interim close. So Venters, I understand by our next podcast, you will have shared this episode 
and or multiple episodes with two people that you care for. Thank you very much. Until next time, share away.